0: This podcast is supported by Progressive, a leader in RV insurance. RVs are for sharing adventures with family, friends, and even your pets. So if you bring your cats and dogs along for the ride, you'll want Progressive RV Insurance. They protect your cats and dogs like family by offering up to $1,000 in optional coverage for vet bills in case of an RV accident, making it a great companion for the responsible pet owner who loves to travel. See Progressive's other benefits and more when you quote RV insurance at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Pet injuries and additional coverage and subject to policy terms. Short with
2: of welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome to week two of You and Me on the Politics Guys. Two out of three. We're going to do a 3 peep next week. I know. It's exciting. Now, just for our listeners, I know that Mike on, uh, on Facebook said, look, you know, Jay is missing and there's been a coup, right? He, he was accusing <laughs> uh, Ken and I of a coup. And I want you to say that, listen, Jay is not missing. He's just locked in my basement and he can't come out right now. Uh, <laughs> now, if that's a coup, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway but no it is a lot of fun to get to be doing uh our our three weeks together ken uh you know this week we're going to be tackling some things about nato we're going to be tackling uh the supreme the ongoing new supreme court investigations coming out of the ap um, we're going to be talking about inflation and what's happening there uh, and then we're also going to be talking a little bit about the evolution of representative green Uh, And we might have some more from there. We'll see we have time uh, uh, to do. But I think we're going to kick off with here is NATO, because this week, NATO member nations held their summit in Lithuania. And it, it isn't hard to imagine it was full of intrigue, like, you know, any bit of international relations, like all of the books the Kins have ever recommended, <laughs> right? Now, 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 the biggest of these, uh, of course, is what is NATO's relationship to Ukraine and what ought that relationship look like? Now, I thought Vox uh, laid it out pretty well this week when they said that, quote, Western leaders are worrying whether Ukraine and their own stockpiles can sustain such a war, end quote. Uh, And it's worth pointing out at the same time that NATO's thinking about how they're going to continue to support Ukraine, that Biden also decided to reverse an earlier decision and send cluster bombs to Ukraine. And I think that kind of colored a little bit of what was going on there. Now, that was a decision uh, that has caused a lot of discourse. And in this case, I think probably one of the biggest cases of where uh, the left was probably a little bit more hesitant than the right. Um, although there was he- there was some bipartisan hesitancy, and we can talk a little bit more about that, uh, just from a point of view, 100 and country uh, 120 countries have banned the use of cluster bombs for a variety of reasons: their ability to hit civilians, their ability uh, to hang around if they don't explode for decades and still be deadly. Uh, although it is worth noting uh, that the United States, Ukraine, and Russia are not actually signatories to any of those treaties. Um, if anybody's interested in, uh, in kind of that take, you can take a look at um, uh, CNN kind of have the right wing, ironically, uh, position for why we need to send cluster bombs. But be that as it may, um, you know, this, I think, sets up some of the stage for what we, we saw happening uh, in NATO. So to return to Lithuania, uh, NATO appeared to largely want to show unity against Russia. Now, what Ukraine wanted was a substantial timeline for joining the alliance instead of this, quote-unquote, one day. Now, the United States was clear it was not interested in a faster timeline because it does not want to be directly involved in the conflict. Now, the final report from NATO that we got this week was Ukraine can join when, quote, conditions are met, end quote. But the document itself does not spell out or list what those conditions are. Now, I would say as political scientists, I think, you know, this is kind of clearly unclear language. Uh, you can join, maybe, if you win the war against Russia and a sufficient time after winning, there remains peace. I mean, that, that clearly is what NATO is talking about here, although they don't want to put it quite in those terms. Now, Ukrainian President Zelensky, he was not happy about this. And this is one of the bigger riffs we've seen uh, come out. As numerous outlets have put it, his tone was, quote, sharp, uh, and he called it, quote, unprecedented and absurd, end quote, that no time frame was set for NATO membership. So again, the takeaway is clear. Countries want to support Ukraine as a proxy, but not drawn to the point where NATO countries would be involved on the ground. Now, uh, uh, Biden would point out that despite their differences, uh, the unity of NATO proved Putin wrong, even on the point of Ukraine, as he said, quote, "We are ready. We were ready because we stood together." End quote. Now, in addition to that, of course, Ken, we have the the other uh, country trying to get into NATO, and that's Sweden. Uh, but Turkey th- uh, initially threw up a number of roadblocks, uh, holding a veto over the uh, entry of Sweden into uh, NATO, arguing that they would only back it if. The EU members would agree to revive Turkey's negotiations to join the EU. Now, that position softened by the end of the conference um, when the president, Erdogan, uh, agreed to withdraw his objection Monday, but still seems to be kind of taking that on a slow boat. Uh, So we'll see. He says he's going to take that up for ratification uh, with Turkey's legislature in October. President Biden was credited with making that shift with Turkey possible. So for me, Ken, again, I see the two big items here is we have the relationship of Ukraine to NATO, what that means for the war, what that means in terms of munitions headed to uh, Ukraine. And then, of course. You know, we have Sweden, which is making this bid because of the moves by Russia uh, and, and maybe the slow boatings by uh, uh, Turkey. Do you agree with that? And what do you see happening on those two fronts?
3: So on the on the front with um, Turkey and on the front with Ukraine, you're saying? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, OK, let's talk about Turkey first, because we'll probably talk about Ukraine longer. So, um, yeah, Turkey... Uh, you know, it it sits pretty uneasily within NATO and right kind of on the periphery of the EU. um, Because, you know, in case listeners don't know, um, Turkey has been applying since the 1980s to be in the EU. And um, while the EU has never granted uh, full membership to Turkey, um, along the path to, to that, it has uh, entered into a lot of agreements with Turkey that do give, um, uh, you know, so many of the rights that EU members would have. So that there, there is, for instance, um, free movement of people between Turkey and the EU, um, you know, which for instance there no longer is with the United Kingdom. Uh, right. So yeah. So um, so it has it. it definitely has uh, some of the kinds of rights. And there's there's a few other countries. In Europe, um, also that are not full-fledged members of the EU, but that are in um, uh, agreements with the EU that that give some of those rights. So Turkey has been wanting to move that forward, and I guess its rhetorical position has been, you know, if if, if Europe is slowballing full Turkish membership in the EU, then Turkey's going to slowball, you know, anyone else's membership in any organization that that Turkey's a member of, um, including Swedish membership in uh, NATO. Um, now in NATO itself, um, uh, you know, Turkey. Sometimes you know, is on the verge of being kicked out of NATO because they they have never stopped um, uh, doing many deals with uh, Putin. Um they have much friendlier relations with Russia than other uh, NATO countries do. um they've They've consistently violated all the the current um, sanctions that the West has imposed um, on Russia and because of the Ukraine war. and that's actually made it possible um, for for Russia to do a lot of international commerce. Um, that the sanctions would otherwise pr- pr- prohibit it from doing so um, so you know Turkey's not um, a member in great standing in NATO. it's not a member it's not a country that the EU has been um, anxious to accept for membership. Um, and I don't really know where that's all headed. I think you know I, I wouldn't, um, Love to to let uh, Turkey join any any treaty organization that I was a member of, especially under their, their current government. But on the other hand, there's you know there's strategic reasons to include them in things. I mean, in NATO, it's probably better to have them as a um, unreliable ally um, than as just you know an adversary. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, and in the in the EU, um, you know it, it, the the more economic integration and movement of people there is in Europe. You know, I guess the hope is that that's going to be a salutary and beneficial um, influence on on Turkey and help help moderate Turkey. Um, so I guess those are the arguments for. Uh, well, and, more, and, and but, just to kind yeah. of
2: put some of that more in perspective there, Ken, because, you know, you talk about, you know, Turkey. I mean, one of the things it sits kind of in that transitional position when you think of it as a political scientist. Right. It's not a fully formed democracy. You know, Freedom House, for example, uh, consistently r- r- ranks them as not free. Uh, you know, th- they had authoritarian rule uh, through the 1950s. Um you know, so their, you know, their civil and their political rights continue to to rank low. So they are that kind of difficult on ball out when it comes to, you know, those are not the kinds of scores you're seeing in your typical EU country,
3: right? Yeah, it's, it's not a modern Western democracy. No. And it has much more in common with Putin's Russia than with most of the um its NATO allies. And that that's very problematic. But I guess there's the old adage, you know, maybe you want to you know, uh, keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer, right? And, uh, you know, Turkey, you know, maybe it's better for the, for the West to keep Turkey in the Western fold, um, even though it doesn't really operate like a Western country.
2: Well, and of course, there is, and again, this is not a perfect correlation, but one that is a possibility theory is to suggest that as you have more uh, economic and political ties you tend to see authoritarian and non-free countries or transitional countries move more towards uh, uh, democratic and freedom often. Now, again, that's not a perfect correlation. That's something that you know, scholars still explore, but there is evidence to suggest that that is one way, right? So if you isolate a country, they're more likely to, to kind of reinforce authoritarian uh, impulses, whereas if you can take those transitional countries and have certain kinds of connections with them, Uh, you do increase uh, possibly the likelihood of them um, moving more free.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's why the EU has moved in the direction of integrating Turkey, even though they've never granted uh, Turkey full membership. It's precisely for that hope. And I think that hope is generally true. I think it generally bears out, um, but not always. You know, there's counterexamples, and I think Hungary's been another counterexample. And one could say that Russia itself is a counterexample because you know, the the West moved a lot closer to it um, during the Yeltsin years. And then, you know, that didn't keep it moving in a good direction. We got the Putin years after that. Yeah,
2: Well, I would say, and this is kind of off topic, then when you get back to Ukraine, I actually have kind of a unique theory on Russia. It's not, excuse me, I subscribe to a theory that I don't think it's enough uh, airtime on Russia. I don't want to make it sound like I'm the one who came up with this uh, unilaterally. (laughs) You know, I have things I've come up, this is not one of them. Uh, But I think part of the problem with Russia uh, was not that connection, but so much as it was almost what you might call the original sin of its transition uh, from authoritarian communist rule. Uh, Because effectively what you have happen is not real uh divestment of assets by the uh, government but instead you have the same individuals who happen to be you know communist party members then controlling those in the so-called free market so there's a whole suggestion that that really was more of a uh, uh a unique case but you're right it, i mean uh, theoretically if it's going to work it should work there but but let's get back over there uh, uh to this issue of Ukraine and its membership in NATO because i think you're right we're going to need to spend more time talking about that
3: yeah, um, it's it's uh, you know I think you 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 know you've summarized everything really well. Uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons to want Ukraine to be in NATO, and there's also a lot of reasons that you don't want a country joining NATO that's already fighting a hot war. Right. Um, because because that that commits um, every member country uh, to being um, combatants in that hot war, and you know that that basically commits the U.S. to having a declared war against uh, Russia um, for the first time in history, right? We had the cold war for a long time and we had a lot of proxy wars, but there were reasons that they didn't want the cold war to turn into a hot war. I mean, it could typically there are books written a, about this. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you know, the, I mean, literally the fate of the earth would be at stake there. You know, you're talking about, uh, countries that, um, uh, have the, have the capability of ending life on earth if they get in a um, hot war with each other. So, um, I, I think both your summary was good, and I think the underlying policy is good. I mean, I think what the NATO is signaling, um, you know, they did a couple things that are um, I think, very positive for Ukraine, you know, just sort of um, both rhetorically and 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 functionally. Rhetorically, it's the first time ever that there's a unanimous vote of all NATO members saying that um, Ukraine does belong in NATO, and it's just a question of when time and circumstances allow um but but in principle they they should be a nato member and they will be a nato member you know that is something that there's never been unanimity about before until until this week um and and the other thing is that uh, as a functional or practical matter um there is a process for joining nato and it involves a you know generally um uh, something called a membership action program or map um where a, a list of um benchmarks and timelines are laid out and the, the applicant country has to um, comply with these benchmarks and timelines before they can get membership and you know on the one hand you know as you noted Zelensky's complaining well they wouldn't even give us a membership action program which is true but but the other half of that is they actually waived the requirement right so in this in this in this thing um uh, you know NATO NATO says well we want Ukraine as a member when time and circumstances allow, and in fact, when time and circumstances allow, we're just going to make them a member. They're not going to have to go through a membership action program like like every other non-original member has had to go through. So, so I think it's a it's a pretty strong statement that Ukraine is part of the West. That that, that the West isn't going to um, you know be drawn into a, a a hot war that could become a nuclear war between the U.S. and and Russia right now, but that um, we're going to keep the whole West, the unified West, is going to keep supplying quite a lot of military aid as we have been this whole time, and that we expect that uh, Ukraine is going to see its way through this conflict. Yes, yeah, so so uh, N- NATO is uh, expanding now. Uh, Finland joined, Sweden just joined, Ukraine will be joining. And these are all countries that are actually physically on the border with Russia, um, a- as is Turkey. And so you know that's really speaking to a, a world where something like a future um, invasion of of Ukraine, you know isn't isn't going to be possible because russia's not going to attack any memo any nato member country and 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 there's starting to be a ring around uh russia of uh of, of nato member countries yeah you know this is something that I have pondered i think
2: it's unlikely i mean you say they're like they're not going to uh invade a nato country and, and I would say i eighty five percent agree with you <laughs> <laughs> but I can't help but wonder, especially as we see some of the internal you know we covered um Last week, some of the internal politics happening in Russia, I can imagine a cornered Putin doing some pretty dangerous things. And so I can't help but have like 10 or 15 percent of myself that thinks I could see the man blowing things up. But I'm curious. I mean, I mean do, you, do you have that? Are you kind of that 80, 90, 10, 15 percent like I am? Or are, are you more confident that, look, Putin's not going to do that?
3: Yeah, I'm even more confident. And the reason for that is, um, let's suppose I agree with your number of 80%. There's 80% chance that Putin would be um, uh, d- 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 dissuaded or disincentivized yes, yeah. to invade. But there's still a 20% chance that he wouldn't care and he would do it. Well, I think even if I accept that number as an accurate number, um, I don't think he could pull it off because you know, he's got his own. <laughs> people think of him as a dictator but he he's got to keep the military uh, on his side. He's got his own version of the Pentagon to deal with. And I think there's a, you know, th- there's there's cooler heads over there. And they're they're not going to um, launch a suicide mission like that. There's some kind of uh, process, you know. I mean, he obviously controls his parliament a lot more than our U.S. presidents control our Congress. But there's even a certain point. The where understatement
2: a, of the world says yeah, every yeah, Biden yeah. official right now.
3: But continue, continue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm saying even with the extent that um, you know he largely can choose who's in the parliament and and that you know he largely tells them how to vote. You know, I think there's there's limits to that. And you know, starting with going to be a nuclear war against NATO. That's going to be a a suicide mission for sure. You know, I I, I think he's not going to be able to get it done, even if he decides that's what he wants to do. Yeah.
2: Now, I think something else here, and this might come off as unusual, but I think it's important. I think that precisely what we saw happen uh, in Lithuania and what we've seen happen with this is an example of while I have deep policy disagreements in some areas with uh, Biden, the Biden administration, uh, why Biden was an excellent presidential pick for the time that we were had uh, vis-a-vis the alternative in Trump. I mean, I I just can't imagine, uh, you know, getting Turkey to turn around, walking this line with both supporting the Ukraine, but being willing to, you know, kind of draw important lines with Ukraine. Uh, You know, those are not easy tasks. And, And I think, this is an area. It's not going to help win any points uh, uh, politically in terms of an election, but I do think it's an area where uh, the where Biden and the Biden administration uh, should get some credit. Yeah, absolutely. I thought you were going to, you know, uh, you know, agree more verifiably than that. I, I,
3: I, no, <laughs> no, I mean, I agreed. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. Okay, like, yes. There I'll you go, Trey. Trey, I... <laughs> Trey, you're so right. You're so right. I agree so much. You're so right.
2: That's <laughs> no, all good. That's all good. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that we think that the, anything I've missed here from my overview that I think we, that we need to talk about in terms of NATO, Ken?
3: You know, I, I do think the situation of um, uh, Turkey is is interesting. We talked about it a little bit already, but um, you know, I, no country's ever been kicked out of NATO, and and I I don't think Turkey you know will be kicked out of NATO. But I think it is it is a real conundrum um, for 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 the other NATO countries to think about kind of how to, how to keep Turkey in line when I think you know consistently Erdogan's sympathies are much more with Putin than with his um, NATO allies. And he he's in constant communication with Putin and he, he does sometimes try to um, undermine NATO in, in quiet ways. And it's, it's not a, a great situation. Um, maybe besides that, the only other issue we didn't talk about at all, there was an op-ed in the New York Times today Um, by a scholar at the Columbia University um, Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies Uh, where he was arguing that um, Europe doesn't even need the U.S. as as much as it used to, and that Europe is fully capable with a a, a military alliance with or without the United States of of, um, presenting a a, a unified uh, defensive front strong enough to contain Russia, um, and that that factor will end up uh, ultimately um, weakening the United States and making it uh, less relevant in uh, world uh, geopolitics, and I, I, I was trying to think about that. I don't know what to think about it, but I found that a kind of provocative thing that I read uh, this week. Um, you know, in response to everything that was just happening um, at, at the summit in Lithuania, and I don't know if you had any thoughts about that.
2: Well, I, I mean, I suppose that it's definitely true. One of the things that we have, I think, rightfully pushed for, is that European countries need to to spend their proportion of what it's going to take uh, for defensive measures and. You know that is one area where although I disagreed with uh, the means of undertaking it, I agreed with the Trump administration in terms of, look, you know Europe needs to spend proportionally what we have to spend to make defense uh, occur. But I mean, I guess the the in the flip side of that, of course is true is is if you make that the case, uh, you won't get to make the same kinds of soft demands, right? I mean, so you know, if you are picking up a significant portion of the budget, of course. Uh, that means that other individuals might be willing to kind of see to your decisions in terms of the United States. Um, but I don't know if that's – I mean, I, it seems like the undertone – I haven't read the article, Ken – but yeah. it seems like the undertones of that, that that's a bad thing. And I, I, I'm i not sure that I would suggest that that's a bad thing. I think that – I'm not sure if hegemony – it
3: no, I'm not sure. If, no, actually, yeah. I think you're right. I agree with you on that, too. And, but I don't actually I, I may have mischaracterized. I don't think the author of the piece meant to say whether it was a good or bad thing. I think he okay. just meant to say it's a real thing like he was saying. And he was saying that the 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 um, for instance, he has some numbers in here. Like he says, the GDP of the EU last year was 16 trillion. The GDP of Russia was two trillion. And so he's saying, like, you know, the EU just obviously has incredibly more resources to bring to bear than Russia does. And so, you know, those extra resources that that they get from the U.S., you know, they, with or without them, that you know, they, they would be fine. And he was also talking about Russia kind of proving itself in the Ukraine war to be more of a paper tiger than people realized. And so that if the European countries thought, well, you know, Russia has enormous military resources and we could never um, handle them without U.S. assistance, um, you know, Russia's kind of, you know, showed the whole world that that's, not true. Although, of course, there has been U.S. assistance. So, um, so I think he was just sort of saying that's the that's the future, um, and you know that uh, maybe it is. I mean, the, the U.S. has certainly taken an isolationist turn. Um, the 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 EU is uh, it is a larger economic block than the, than the U.S. is now, or even than all of North America is now. And uh, um, so, you know, maybe that's just the way things are going. And I, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Now the one the
2: one caveat again I had to I'd have to look more closely is and and you hinted at it there as well is I mean of course we are sending a significant amount of munitions and and funding to Ukraine uh you know minus the United States doing that that's a, it, it's hard it's always hard one of the things you know I think a lot of times it it makes for phenomenal writing but it can be very difficult science is to try to suggest. Well, if we tweaked these variables you know in the past, what would have been the outcome in the present um right. but yeah, I, I think that would be one area where uh you know the United States was obviously the lead on that front and was the coordinator for making that happen to the ukraine uh again, I don't know what would have happened without the United States taking that position um but I can certainly imagine scenarios in which um there was not as much munitions, types of munitions or funding for Ukraine, minus the United States taking a leadership role on that front uh, to play maybe a kind of a devil's advocate a little bit there.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. And actually, I think that's also true about the soft power aspects of the United States that uh, particularly countries like Germany, which really, you know, were buying most of their energy resources from Russia and really had to sacrifice a lot more to impose um, sanctions against Russia, uh, I think it was, you know, that might not have happened if the U.S. hadn't kind of put all that pressure on them. And that that depends, you know, on the U.S.'s ability to put pressure on, on, on other countries.
2: Yeah, this is true. This is true.
3: Well, Ken, any last thoughts there on that? No, oh, I'm glad we got to talk about an international story to start the show. Well,
2: and we lead it off, right? You know, there yeah. you go. We're always doing the international thing. So I think what we're going to need to do, if I'm uh, uh, seeing this right, is, is let's move forward to the AP's uh, investigation of the Supreme Court. And we're going to kind of t- handle two parts of this because we kind of have two major Supreme, major Supreme Court stories coming out. So we'll start with uh, the APs, which apparently, if you take a look at uh, what they've been filing, is predates what ProPublica was doing. Uh, they've been working on in-depth investigation concerning the Supreme Court, using hundreds of public information requests around the country, especially as it relates to libraries, other public universities, and things of that nature. And what they were doing, what they were trying to get a, a handle on, was to take a look at, at Supreme Court justices who are making money in other ways, and how they use their staff to make those efforts happen. That that kind of was the focus uh, uh, primarily. And what the AP found, what was kind of making waves this past week, was that Sotomayor's staff had urged colleges, libraries, and others who were hosting book, book events to buy significant quantities of her books. Now, This is something we talked about, you know, first, the two of us had, uh, Ken, we talked about Justice Thomas, and then, and again, then with uh, Jay and myself, when we took on a a lead is to remember that there are no particular ethics rules. So while there are ethical rules that bar members of Congress and the executive branch from, quote, using government resources, including staff for personal financial gain, end quote, those rules don't necessarily uh, apply to the Supreme Court. Be that as it made, uh, what the AP found is that Sotomayor has made some $3.7 million, by far the most of any uh, Supreme Court member, uh, since she joined the court in 2009, and that her taxpayer-funded court staff is what made many of her ventures possible, far exceeding what they saw from other members of the high court. Now, Some of the more troubling interactions, according to the AP, uh, were those where there seemed to be some difficulties over the requiring of book purchases uh, to meet with Sotomayor, because theoretically, you're not supposed to have a book requirement to have these uh, public officials. Now, what's interesting is, is in terms of the Supreme Court, Supreme Court members have an annual salary of $285,400 a year. Uh, they can go over that by 30000 for other things, but the one exception is, in fact, book sales. Book sales are not included in that. Uh, uh, as the AP, uh, AP has put it, though, when it comes to what they have seen, quote, none of the justices has forcefully leveraged public-sponsored uh, um, travel to boost book sales, as has Sotomayor, according to her emails and other records received, end quote. This has also led to some discussions, and this is something that uh, Jay and I took on with Alito, uh, to issues of recusal when it comes to Penguin, uh, where the court had noted that uh, she had not uh, due to an inadvertent admission, end quote. But of course, uh, similarly, nothing that she did or wouldn't have done uh, affected anything because that court, those cases were not opted to be taken up. Uh, So. Here's where we're at with uh, Sotomayor. I mean, it clearly hasn't necessarily violated any rules. The AP sees this as kind of being shady uh, and, move, and, and, and uh, paints the story in that way. Uh, both Democrats and Republicans have kind of come out against this. And it seems to me, I'm curious about you, Ken, you know, for me personally, I gave Justice Thomas a lot of, I thought, well, I had a lot of leeway for him and and, and clearly uh, you know, what when, when we had talked about, he had violated um, uh, those rules. I think it's pretty straightforwardly. Uh, I, then again, w- with Alito, I didn't see that. And then here with Sotomayor, I, I see kind of a sleaze move that's not necessarily uh, uh, illegal. But what I think this might do, since we now see it crossing uh, ideological divides, this might give there being enough bipartisan support to rethink having some ethics rules that do, in fact, apply to the Supreme Court in a more meaningful way. Um, what do you think about that, Ken?
3: No, my, my prediction will be 180 degrees the opposite. Um, this uh, kind of scurrilous reporting on Justice Sotomayor, who did not do anything wrong, um, is going to make a, a complete bipartisan consensus within the Supreme Court. That they shouldn't have any ethics rules on the Supreme Court. That the, the very reason that they never wanted to have ethics rules apply to themselves is because they thought that that would be a, a basis for unfair partisan attacks against them. And now they will all think that. So they will never impose any um, uh, ethics rules on themselves. And uh, Congress won't do it either because Congress is too dysfunctional. Um, but, you know, Justice Sotomayor, the, the things that people are complaining about here. Um, you know for one thing they they don 't violate any rules because for the the Supreme Court doesn 't have ethical rules that apply to it the ethical rules that apply to other federal judges and not even to the Supreme Court, as as you explained, um, uh, actually permit them to earn um, relatively unlimited uh, royalties on books, so long as they sell the actual books. Um, And the disclosure rules, which sometimes do apply under the Ethics and Government Act, and which Justice Thomas consistently violated for decades, um, uh, Justice Sotomayor reported all of this royalty income. It's all public disclosure. So she disclosed it all. Nothing's been concealed. Every one of her public appearances was public. Everybody knows where she went to do book talks. Everybody knows how many books she sold. Everybody knows how much she was paid. So even even in principle, um, she she didn't do anything. Not only didn't she violate any rules, there, nothing she did, there shouldn't be any rule against anything she did. Well, Everything that, as a fact, was there is for
2: lower courts, uh, her use of staff for what she was doing would be an ethical violation.
3: Okay. But that, um, yeah, that's such a minor, that's such a minor thing. I mean, it shouldn't be an ethical violation. I mean, it's because she, the the purpose of these ethical rules and, and the problem with what um, uh, um, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito do is that, they're essentially allowing themselves to be corrupted by partisans who are trying to ingratiate themselves with them to affect their ideology and to affect their decision making. And they're, they're showering them with huge gifts. And these guys know that that's crooked and they're trying to keep it all secret. Now, in, in Justice Sotomayor's case, um, you know, the, the money from selling the books is coming from millions of people who buy the books. Um, it's not. There's nobody who's ingratiating themselves with her. Well, in this there's particular nobody... case,
2: who's yeah. buying the books, that, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not necessarily, I think it underwrites your opinion, but uh, it's in fact the locations, the libraries and the universities that she is a convincing to purchase the books and purchase them in large amounts of the books. Um, especially when it comes in terms to the children's books, uh, which make money and give in particular in people access. I mean, again, I don't necessarily think that destroys your argument, but I do think that's different than saying, well, oh, just a lot of people bought the book and then showed up to these things. You're talking about staff who are trying to get different locations to purchase super large quantities of these books.
3: So so I think you need to d- divide or distinguish two different issues that you're raising and, and keep them separate from each other. So I think one issue that you're trying to raise about the staff is that the, the government pays the salaries of the staff and the government expects the staff to be working on government business and she's having the staff work on her own private side hustle, and not on government business, and so that's a little bit of a a, a fraud or a deception on the taxpayers who are paying the salaries of, of her staff. So I, I think that's the argument there about the use of the staff. Um, I think am that's I right fair. about that? I think that's yeah. fair.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I both will grant the legitimacy of that argument, but say it's it's incredibly minor to the point where the cure would be worse than the disease because. You know her her staff is, and every every judge's staff, every federal judge, including the Supreme Court, um, their staff is incredibly small, right? So she she probably has like you know maybe four law clerks, maybe two secretaries, and you know they they have to do the work of running the chambers. And, you know, any amount of time that they put into this, it's really, really chump change. You know, if you compare this to, you know, the other branches of government, you know, where, you know, we don't want to see, um, you know, the, 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 the president or the Congress, um, you know, having their, their, their staffers working on their side hustles. Well, you know, they could be gobb- that that kind of diversion of public resources could be gobbling up, you know, a lot of resources because there's a lot of staff. You know, here we're you know again. The total staff of a Supreme Court justice's office is about six people, and all of those people actually have to do all the work of of running the the justice's office. So we can only be talking about you know such an incredibly tiny um, waste of public resources here. If there is a waste of public resources, that I, I do think that the, the 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 cure is worse than the disease. The idea that this can be seen as an ethics scandal just based on that um, is is a worse problem. Um, the, than the, the very minor use of very minor amounts of taxpayer money. Now, if the other thing that you were talking about is that, oh, and I, I actually went to one of these talks. So I'll use a real-world example. Justice Sotomayor came around um, to my kids' high school, Walnut Hills High School in Cincinnati. Uh, she did do a book talk there. Um, there was a, you know, the, the the high school doesn't sell books, but they she they were told to bring a bookseller there. And there's a local bookstore in Cincinnati called uh, Joseph Beth. And they came over and sold books and, um, you know, probably sold hundreds of books that night. um, And people lined up to have Justice Sotomayor um, um, autograph them. Now, I think what you'd have to be positing to say that there was anything corrupt about that. um, And and again, this was all public. It was all publicly disclosed. The, The speech was at Walnut Hills High School. The bookseller was Joseph Beth. That was in all the newspapers, everybody knew it. Um, All the book sales are disclosed in her disclosure forms. Now you'd have to posit that um, after all that disclosure has been publicly made, that there's a, a case in the Supreme Court that either Walnut Hills High School or Joseph Beth Books are involved in it, um, that, 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 that you know, somebody looks at the public disclosure forms and, and says to Justice Sotomayor, "Well, you, you sold books through Joseph Beth at Walnut Hills High School and made money off this, so I want you to recuse, um, and that she would recu- refuse to recuse herself. that all that would have to happen before there's even a, a possibility that anybody could say that anything like this was corrupt. And as, as, you, as you noted, certainly nothing like that ever happened. And the closest that ever happened, um is that there were people who applied uh, for cert in Supreme Court cases where cert was never granted and and so nobody even drew it to justice sotomayor's attention. so she probably voted not to grant cert in those cases. The large majority had to um but but if 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 one of those cases would have actually got docketed. Then, you know, at that point, people start looking at who the litigants are, and there could have been recusal motions and nothing ever got that far. So there's there's no actual corruption. There's nobody from Walnut Hills High School who's calling up Justice Justice Sotomayor and saying, hey, you know, I I hosted you at the high school. You know, now I want to ingratiate myself with you and meet with you and spread my ideology to you. It's not the same as the Harlan Crow type thing. and, And I think it's not comparable. Well, let's take a
2: brief pause and then come back. And we actually need to kind of get back to that because we need to talk a little bit more about what happened with Justice Clarence Thomas this past week as well.
0: This podcast is supported by Progressive, a leader in RV insurance. RVs are for sharing adventures with family, friends, and even your pets. So if you bring your cats and dogs along for the ride, you'll want Progressive RV Insurance. They protect your cats and dogs like family by offering up to $1,000 in optional coverage for vet bills in case of an RV accident, making it a great companion for the responsible pet owner who loves to travel. See Progressive's other benefits and more when you quote RV Insurance at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Pet injuries and additional coverage and subject to policy terms.
2: So, Ken, I mean, we had the AP investigation, but then we also have coming out of this additional revelations from Justice Thomas. Now, again, the two of us, we'd already taken this up uh, in terms of uh, his relationship with Crow and, and clearly some um, problematic relationships. And on that front, I think we agreed. Uh, this week, what ended up coming out was is that Thomas' uh, clerk, had received uh, money through Venmo. Now, okay, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, like Ken, what Venmo... I'm just teasing Ken.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I barely know what Venmo is.
2: <laughs> Venmo is a, uh, a way to electronically send money to e- each other. Now, what makes Venmo unique and weird, and I'll never forget the first time I actually uh, I grabbed it uh, because students so they were talking about it. And I'm always trying to keep up with these things is imagine if you actually included like a 128 characters to explain what you were paying and then that was public. So in other words, anybody on Venmo can just look through and be like, oh, look, you know, some Trey Orndorff sent 40 bucks to Ken, uh, you know, and then I can write whatever I want to go along with that um and so as a matter of fact the only venmo that i've ever done was i did one once uh to a buddy of mine uh and i put down for inappropriate reasons right like i I wrote something i won't say exactly what i put (laughs) just because i knew it'd be public i thought it'd be funny um i I had i should probably rethink that uh but um because i thought it was dumb right the whole idea of okay who you know I, I can't understand any circumstance and when I want to give money to somebody and then I'm gonna make it public. But anyway, that's what, that is what Venmo is, um, which makes it different from things like Apple Pay, Google Pay, uh, or probably the most uh, popular of these, which is PayPal. Uh, but uh, OK, bring it back to uh, Justice Thomas. Uh, what ended up happening was uh, a number of former clerks sent an undisclosed amount of money uh, to the current clerk, which all has, again, in those little tags you can write what you want to, different things. Uh, which relate to a Christmas party or to uh, Thomas's Christmas party, uh, or abbreviations that seem to indicate Thomas uh, and his Christmas party. Now, of course, we don't know the details or the amounts, uh, and as soon as the AP uh, made contact with the clerk, uh, the Venmo was made private, which is a step that you can take, although that is a a multi-step process. Um. A lot of uh, scholars on this can basically said, look, it could be uh, both perfectly innocent or a, a terribly corrupt. It's really tough to tell. But in the wake of what had happened before, it's hard to not read it, uh, I'll say myself, uh, in, in a good light uh, one way or the other. Uh, and again, it just kind of added to, I think, a, pl- st- a, pl- a large number of stories this week. Uh, 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 on Supreme Court members. Uh, What do you have? What do you say about that? Or at least especially that view from uh, uh, other ethicists for the court?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think there could be innocent explanations for these payments, but I do think it's incumbent upon Justice Thomas to say what those are, Um, you know, especially because, you know, some of the payments came from lawyers with business before the court. uh, And in 100 percent of those cases, he voted their way, Right. So one of them was Patrick Strawbridge, who was the lawyer who just recently won the affirmative action case. Um, one of them was uh, Kate Todd. Um, who served as White House Deputy Counsel um, under under Donald Trump? She worked for for Pat Cipollone um, in uh, in in the White House Counsel's office, um, which you know won some cases or at least argued some cases and, and got Thomas's vote. In fact, they got Thomas's vote even on the the, the case about trying to uh, investigate the election, where he was the only one who voted that way. So I, I think he he should you know explain why his law clerk was taking um, Venmo payments from his former clerks who are currently lawyers with business before the court. There was some other reporting on other Thomas undisclosed stuff that came out this week, too. Um, There was a big New York Times piece about a group called the Horatio Alger Society, which Thomas is a member of, um, and they've constantly been also – uh, taking him on vacations and also allowing him to choose recipients for scholarships that they grant out um, and and doing things like that. He never disclosed any of that. Um, the Times article also talked about how he never disclosed um, that somebody had paid for a vacation that he took in the Bahamas in the mid80s. Now he wasn't a federal judge yet then, but he was um, the chairman of the EOC and so that's something that, that should have been disclosed at the time, because he was a, a high-ranking federal official. Um, and uh, um, somebody else said that um, uh, also during that time, um, uh, um, when, when Justice Thomas was married in 1987 to uh, his first wife um, and he was chairman of the EOC, that uh, a third party paid for the wedding reception. And again, that wasn't disclosed either. So there's an increasing amount of reporting coming out over a long period of time about individuals um making very large gifts to Justice Thomas you know um individually um that should have been disclosed and and him not uh, disclosing them and so i think that's a bigger deal than the christmas party venmos you know i think the christmas party venmos may have just been reimbursements for out of pocket expenses that the clerk made and and not um you know not really anything corrupt but i i think he he you know he should he should explain that
2: yeah, I mean, it, it would be an easy explanation. I, I think the problem for Thomas right now, and I think you've laid it out really well there, is that you have a long pattern of what appears to be some pretty terrible behavior.
3: <laughs> I mean, there's yeah, just no other way to what put I it. Think. Yeah, um, yeah,
2: and and again, this guy, you know, I I came to you know when this first came out with ProPublica, I was a little skeptical, but I mean, the evidence is clear, and in a way where I didn't you know, uh, and again, we, we want to want to rehash everything, but in a way that I didn't see the evidence being clear for Alito, uh, I see this being clear for Thomas. He, he clearly uh, is, especially with the, you know, with his house, with his mom, with his, yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, mean I, I don't know what else, I mean, there doesn't even appear to be a plausible possibility for what that story <laughs> is. Well, he
3: he um, wants to be, he wants to like, you know, be sort of a kept man who's subsidized by his billionaire friends and they get a lot of access to him because of that and they and they ingratiate themselves with him and they inculcate him with their worldview and d- d- dis- dispose him towards their their well, causes. I, see, I think yeah.
2: I, I think in honesty I think that I, I don't think they've changed him any but I think that him being who he is has allowed him to be in these positions and and they and they are happy that he is there and happy to lavish money on him because he is there that doesn't make it any better um uh, but yeah I, I But anyway, but I I think what we should probably move on to now, Ken, um, is the inflation data from this week. Um, So inflation has finally, finally showed some signs of abating. Now, this is one which I think that I was spot on about. Right. I don't often say this about the show, but I'm going to say I was spot on about this, you know forever. Uh, The message was, it's going to be a few months. It's going to be a few months. And I consistently argued that that was not going to be the case, that it was going to be well over a year. Uh, Here we are in 2023. Here we are in uh, uh, July, taking a look at June data. uh, And the answer is we're just now seeing inflation going now. That doesn't mean that damage hasn't been done, right? I mean, uh, as uh, NBC has shown, uh, you know, the normal grocery bill is 40% higher than it was uh, today than it was at the outset of uh, the inflationary uh, pressures. Now, inflation is cooling, but we're going to need to see time where that ends and what that looks like. Uh, Right now, food is still at a 4.7% increase. Overall inflation, however, and that's what has really been a positive sign, has dipped to 3%. Overall inflation hit its peak at 9%. Uh, and and and, then, and that has come slowly down um, from there. If you take a look at this past month in June, uh, if you exclude fuel and uh, food costs, inflation ticks just a little bit higher. Ironically, at four point eight percent. Now, Biden is hoping that this, especially if it continues, will, in his words, "quote show Bidenomics in action." End quote. Now, I have to say, and I'm curious, if you think about this in a minute, Ken. I I still think that's the the dumbest name of all time. Uh, And and whoever advised that should just be hit with a stick. Um, Now, here's where I think the news gets a lot of this wrong. One of the big things this week was like, but look, people aren't rightfully uh, indicating how much better they feel. And of course, the answer is obvious. And whether you're on the left or the right, it should be pretty straightforward. Economics is a lagged indicator. So nobody is going to be already polling differently as a result of June inflation numbers, right? That's not how this works. But I know that's the way, you know, the media oftentimes sets that up. And that's where many of these stories uh, take this, right? Uh, You need to have a sustained lower inflation rate where you're going to see any kind of uh, corresponding possibility for uh, changes in people's feelings. Again, right, you don't come up 40% over the course of just barely three years have one month where it's at 3% and then go, yay, I feel better. That's just not how that happens. Um, and so that's why I think a lot of outlets this past week are still a little bit confused. You know, many of them are like, yeah, but you know, Biden's approval ratings only 33% and only 24% uh, say that what he's doing on the economy is, is doing a good job. And the answer is, well, whatever you think about whether he's a part of that or not, it's just too quick to see that happen. It's going to take a sustained moment. Um, Ken, what do you think about this? I mean, obviously, inflation went on a long time. Uh, again, I think a little more in line with what my predictions were. Uh, where do you think things happen from here? And I'll even let you kind of uh, flow into this because I know this is what uh, everybody's always curious about, uh, and it's clearly what uh, you know the Biden team is hoping for is is this might bode well uh, for reelection bids.
3: Yeah. No, I think on the uh, starting with the politics and then turning to the economics. Um, one of the difficulties with these polls about you know how do, how do people think whatever is those are incredibly influenced by partisan considerations right so i think you know republicans and conservatives you know no, no matter what their financial situation is they're very likely to say that the economy's not good and it's not improving because you know they just associate um, that th- they can't dissociate that question from their thoughts about uh, biden um so i think i think you get kind of those kind of polls are, you know, not um, ultimately I mean, they're, they're important for political reasons, but not so much for economics, I think, um, you know, on, on the,
2: the economic on the, side yeah. might be where you're taking a look at it in terms of Democrats. Right. Democrats are polling pretty low on those fronts as well. That's what you, that's why you yeah. get 24 um, percent. But continue, continue.
3: Yeah. Well, I, I, that's a fair point. That is a fair point. So I think on the on the inflation itself. um, you know, I think you 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 as you said, you were right on the timeline. You know, I, I didn't predict a timeline that I can remember, but I I think I agreed with the the direction that um you know that there were there was a perfect storm of factors that made um, inflation go very you know spike really because you had the combination of the supply chain problem, the um, energy price spike because of the sanctions against Russia, um and and the stimulus spending, and so you had like kind of a moment in time where there's more money than ever floating around. And um, there's less uh, goods being produced and getting to market and energy costs went up. Um, and so of course, there was this massive inflation spike. And just, you know, naturally, um, if nothing had been done, if no policies had had, had been implemented, um, that was going to come down because at a minimum, the supply chain um, uh, problems that happened during the pandemic were, um, uh, you know, starting over time to to be relieved. You know, the further we get from uh, the disruptions of the pandemic, um, and uh, you know, and and things like that. But but I also think that the the Biden administration did everything extremely capably. You know, a lot of people were calling for them to panic a lot more than they did, and they 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 kept a steady hand. And they, they kept raising interest rates. They kept announcing ahead of time, you know, and this is the Fed too, not just the administration, but, um, but I think they were in communication with the administration. But they kept announcing ahead of time inflation's still too high. We're still going to raise the uh, interest rates by another quarter percent or half percent. We're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep doing that. They kept doing it. Um, and eventually it had the effect of, of cooling off demand some. Um, without actually, um, you know, uh, causing any kind of recessionary impact, so um, employment stayed just as full as it's been, um, even as um, uh, inflation came down. Inflation has been coming down, you know, for at least six or nine months now. So, you know, it finally reached a, an, an end line, a finish line, where people would say, "Good, they got it pretty much all the way back down." But this is something that's been, you know, completely evident for for the past nine months that every every quarter. Inflation's been coming down compared to the previous quarter. And so it, it got all the way down. And you know, I think if they would have tried interventions that were even more dramatic, um, it would have caused more hardship and more economic disruption and more unemployment and would have hurt the stock market more. You know, the stock market came way up all year too at the same time that um uh, inflation was going down so you know people who uh, have investments have been making money at a much faster rate um, than, than inflation uh in 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 twenty twenty three and so i I think the economy is you know, looking really good right now
2: yeah I, I, the, the things that I would add is one I, I wouldn't anticipate that you're going to see it you're going to have a little bit of incremental moving i I actually agree with you in the front that I think we're basically at the end. But I think it'll spike a few times. And the reason I make that prediction isn't uh, for anything kind of qualitative, but for a quantitative. You have an inverse of what you would expect in inflation rates right now, normally, when you exclude food and fuel, you see inflation rate being lower than the overall inflation rate, but right now that's actually flipped like I mentioned a second ago. we're seeing everything rise at that three percent rate in June, but you exclude fuel and uh, food, and you have it at that four point eight percent. I think that in- indicates that there's going to be some additional uh uh variability uh and I don't say that as a panic, but just as a you know, I'm not sure July, August, or September, you're gonna see that same three percent until you see the more normal switch between between those two numbers, which is the overall rate should be a little bit uh uh um better. Excuse me, the uh overall rate should be a little bit worse than what you see it when you are including fuel and uh food. Um and and that yeah. being, I mean that that would be one little quantitative thing, and I think people are missing out on that. And again, I don't I don't say that in you know before I said look you know we have inflation for a time. Like I just think that means we have some variability coming up in the next three month cycles.
3: Well, food and fuel, of course, on the one hand, they're very important to people. People do spend a lot of money on food and fuel. But on the other hand, they're 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 much more volatile than um, any policy could affect. Oh yeah yeah
2: yeah. Again, I wasn't suggesting that as a. Um, as a hit point towards anyone.
3: Yeah. So I think that's the problem. That's why all these measures like core inflation usually um, exclude them. But even there, um, you know, food, I think is going to be a problem, you know, a kind of chronic problem because climate change is affecting food production. And, uh, that's just something that you know, people are gonna you know, be dealing with more and more. Fuel, I do think you know, it, it, it'll come down, it'll go up and come down. The, the war in uh, Ukraine is gonna end at some point and um, those markets are gonna get a lot more supply. And also the, this country is doing an incredible job towards uh, moving towards renewables and, and that is gonna bring prices down as well. But in the, in the short run, you know, of course, there's gonna be a lot of volatility. Now, the other thing
2: to kind of get to that longer term, the political question that I know we both want to hit at as well. I actually I don't often find my time saying this, but I think the Atlantic this past week had really an excellent point of view when it came to why uh, lower levels of inflation is not immediately going to be a win uh, for Biden. Uh, and that's not because necessarily anything is terrible inflation but the corresponding numbers of people's purchasing power have lowered and while uh, jobs have remained high which is a positive thing uh, what they can buy with those jobs in other words uh, increase in wages has not kept up with inflation i mean I, this is i can tell you for sure i have lost a ton of money this way personally uh, and for those around me uh, and, and we're going to see that continue in and, and the Atlantic's point, uh, kind of a cautionary tale for how to run uh, the campaign was to say, you're going to have to be careful about this because that's what across the ideological spectrum people have felt and will continue to feel even with the lower inflation, since it's unlikely there's going to be a high wage increase. Um between now, at least across the board, between now uh, and the election and, and and I think that I think that's a well timed point by the Atlantic.
3: It's a really interesting thing um i, I my my sense is that um low wage jobs the the wages have gone up gone up a lot, but not um not maybe not enough for people, but you know, most of the minimum wages around the country are still in the you know in the single digits they're below 10 dollars an hour as is the federal minimum wage and i don't think there's too many jobs left that pay less than 12 dollars an hour and many in many places the the de facto minimum is 15 so i i think i think there have been some increases at the very low end but but 15 may not be enough for people to live on either and i certainly do see the point that a lot of people who are in uh, middle class jobs or upper middle class jobs have seen a lot of wage wage stagnation. You and I certainly both have in, yeah. in academia. Yeah. yeah, I can um, say for yeah. fa-
2: I mean, because again, this is something that I advocate for. You know, here at OC, uh, in in a real way, we've effectively had somewhere in the realm of a twenty three and a half percent pay cut uh, as a result of uh, of um, inflation.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think similar at NKU, we we haven't had too many raises in the past decade, although they tend to still, you know, they don't hire as many people as they used to, but they at NKU, they tend to start entry level people at current market wages. So a lot of people who are just starting uh, as assistant professors will get paid more than people who have been working there for a long time um, because the, the public sees what the entry-level salaries are. You know, the public uh, see what the- Yeah, yeah I can't say, they, uh, yeah. at
2: least here in the private sector, I can't say that's been the case. Our entry-level uh, uh, wages have remained relatively steady here. Um, which, yeah. yeah, yeah. But anyway, that, that, o- o- of course, yeah. that is so, idiosyncratic, no, I mean, I think, so know, know, we have to our, be careful about right,
3: that. Right. But we're, we're, gripe, we're griping about our own uh, situations, but I think they are typical. Like, I think a lot of people who are, um, you know, kind of experienced professionals, who have been holding jobs for a while um, are not seeing raises that keep up with inflation. But, uh, but it, you know, whereas people at the, I think at the lower end, you know, may not notice it because as I say, people who are earning $15 an hour may think that, you know, you can't live on that. But some of those jobs may have only been paying $10 an hour just a couple of years right. ago. Um, and uh, a, lot, a lot of, uh, um, you know, a lot of jobs at that end, it's just impossible to fill them without raising wages. And actually it's been hard for a lot of employers to fill jobs you know, even at the $15 an hour level, there's an enormous amount of available jobs in the economy at that level right now. I don't know what it's like in Oklahoma. Here in Cincinnati, when I walk around town, you know, very, very many retail and restaurant businesses have help wanted signs in the window and things like that. And, you know, it's just, I think so, maybe there'll be a little more upward pressure on wages. The other thing I would say is I would like to see more upward pressure um, from legislatures. Like I think, uh, you know, if we're in kind of um, what the economists would call an oligopsony situation now where um, you know, em- employers can't hire people because um, nobody wants the jobs at the wages that they're paying, but they also don't want to raise the wages. Um, you know That's a good situation for uh, legislatures to say, well, you, you have to raise the wages. And uh, um, I think that could help. And, and I'd like to see more of it.
2: I think one of the reasons you don't see that in Congress is, of course, is as you've noted, I think you do have a conversation going on between uh, the White House and the Fed, and I know this seems you know if you're listening, you might say this seems weird, but it is in fact what the Fed looks for you don't want to see wages rising when you're trying to deal with inflation right it's so uh, you know, yeah anyway
3: yeah, but it's okay i think I think that's the thing you, you generally don't uh, that's absolutely right, but we're we're in a situation now where the the management of the economy has been skillful and Inflation has already come down and employment is still full, and there's still um, actually jobs going unfilled. So uh, if we were still in a period of inflation, I would agree hundred percent with what you just said, but I think we've kind of hit the turning point where inflation's come low enough. and the, and the bigger problem now is um, we, we need people to earn more and we need um, you know we need we need maybe more jobs getting filled. And I think that um, you know, could be prodded along without uh, causing any any significant inflation, um, you know, because we've already hit that inflection point now. Well, Ken, I know it's weird to say we've actually run out of time for the show. What that means is we're
2: going to have a we're going to have a packed show next week. Uh, so you need to come back for the, the third week in the Trey and Ken takeover of the politics, guys.
3: Three Pete. Exactly.
2: Uh, I promise you. I promise you that it, it, uh, shortly, Ken will let Jay out of his basement, and you know, Mike will get back, and they'll <laughs> they'll start doing their thing. You know, I made that joke about me having uh, Jay in the basement, but you know, it, as any good listener might know, is I don't have a basement, um, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> But be that as it may, we're going to have to uh, call it that as being the end of the show for this week. And if you're not already a supporter of the Politics Guys, I really hope you'll consider becoming one because it's supporters that make the show happen. But it doesn't just make the show happen. It gives you all kinds of benefits as well, like ad-free versions of this show. But really importantly... What Ken and I have been working on now uh, for this year has been our midweek show project where we go through the Constitution. And we'd love to have you join as we finish up Article 3 and get into Article 4 of the Constitution uh, during this upcoming midweek show. So you get lots of benefits by being a supporter. So you don't just get the good feeling. You get that, of course, too. But you get these benefits as well. You can come along with uh, uh, myself and Ken. And not only do you get to come along for our newest episode where we tackle the end of Article 3 and get an Article 4, you can actually go back and listen to all of the shows in order. And I really encourage you to do that because these are kind of not tied to the constraints of the news. They don't have a shelf life to them. Uh, I think they're useful all the time and kind of give you that broader context of politics and the Constitution. So if you are interested in making that happen uh you want to get some of these benefits, then what you need to do is head to Patreon.com slash politics guys. Again, that's Patreon.com slash politicsguys. Uh and from there you'll see all the different levels of support, what you're going to get for those levels of support, including, like I mentioned, the ad-free version of this show, the ad-free version of all of our shows, uh, the the exclusive supporters midweek show. We're going through the constitution. But there's other things too, like Discord. Uh, I have been actively on the, on Discord recently. You can see people get after me. It's a lot of fun. Um, you can see people agree, but we can have these real-time conversations in different channels. We'd love to have you there and, and have you taking part of those discussions. I, I've learned a few things myself, um, but it's a real a lot of fun. And If you head to patreon.com slash politicsguys, you'll see all of those different levels of support, and you can see what level of support you'd like to be up to and including all the way to being an executive producer of the Politics Guys. If you'd like to support us on Venmo, uh, we're, on, we're at politics, guys. And again, just remember, uh, those are uh, public. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of those different support, uh, support links are available in the show notes. Just scroll down on your phone or your tablet, and you'll see them right there. Or if you'd like to head on a web browser. You can go to politicsguys.com slash support. Again, that's politicsguys.com slash support, or just scroll down and show more for all of those show notes. If you'd like to get our midweek show, but you're just not in a position to financially support the podcast right now, that's not a problem at all. Just send me an, e- uh, send an email out to mike at politicsguys.com and we'll get you set up. As a matter of fact, I'll be sending out uh, those links a little bit later today. Uh, and we'll get you set up. So whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, review on the podcast app of your choice. Sharing those with others is huge for us, and I would really encourage you to do that. If you've got a comment, question, correction, gripe, or anything else you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you guessed it, you can find all of those in the show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Will Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode next week, and I hope you'll join us then.